world, that doesn't mean that, you know, absolutely everything is bad. Uh, chances are uh, that for most of us, there's many moments, uh, days, times of, of happiness, laughter, contentment, peace, and, and calm in life. And hopefully you were able to enjoy much uh, of that over these holidays. But living in a messy world means that there are obstacles and threats to all those good things. Disappointment, hurt, confusion, pain, fear, depression, those things also come our way because we live in a messy world. Accidents happen. Things don't go the way we hoped or planned. People go back on their word or, or act in ways that bring us hurt and heartache. And coming to Jesus Christ and following Him does not eliminate those negative and, and hurtful things that happen in life. But I'm hoping that in this study of 2 Corinthians, you've been able to find some help and some hope and some strength in following Jesus in this messy world. And today we're going to look at what I believe is, is probably the single biggest way that pain uh, comes into our life, and that is through broken relationships. And I would guess that probably everyone in this room has experienced the agony of a broken relationship at some level or another. I mean, it could be a parent who was absent or caused heartache and grief rather than love and support. A spouse who broke their wedding vows, a child who defiantly rebelled, a, a friend who, for some reason you have no idea what, just abandoned you, a, a co-worker who gossiped about you be, uh, behind your back, or any number of other possibilities, right? Maybe it was even a brother or sister in Christ who hurt you or took advantage of a relationship with you. And actually today, we're not actually going to focus so much on ways broken relationships can hurt us. I mean, I think we all know that. We've seen it, we've experienced it, and the pain they can bring, but actually focus on the hope and the possibility of healing. So hopefully you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Follow along as I read verses 2 and 4 to get us started. It says this, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have. Um, to look into your word now. It's been so great to be able to worship you this morning in, in fellowship and in giving and in, in uh, singing. But now, God, um, we desire for you to uh, use this time, use your word to build us up, to challenge us, to encourage us, to speak your truth to us that we might know it and live by it. And be changed by it. So God, we're asking for your work and the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it'd be good since it's been a few weeks to start by remembering the circumstances uh, surrounding this letter. 
the, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, spent nearly two years in the city of Corinth planting the church there and, and getting it started, giving them uh, a solid foundation. He invested deeply in their lives during that time and built very good relationships. But then sometime, and not all that long after he left, a, a group of, uh, of false teachers moved into the community and into that church. And in order to elevate their, themselves in the people's eyes, they needed to discredit Paul. So they began a campaign of lies and accusations uh, against him. And, and it deeply hurt Paul, not so much the things they said, because, uh, you know, who cares what other people say, but what really uh, deeply hurt him was that so many people in that church that he had built these great relationships with believed the lies and turned their back on and abandoned the Apostle Paul. And, and Jesus himself, he had warned against the dangers of false teachers, and so in spite of the personal hurt that he was feeling, Paul knew that he needed to confront uh, the wrong that was going on with these false teachers. And so he decided to make a, a quick uh, trip uh, to, to visit Corinth. Unfortunately, that visit did not go well. And we don't know the details of exactly what happened. All we know is that Paul left deeply hurt and grieving over what was going on there. And, and, and so he went back to Ephesus, the city he was currently working in, starting to plant another church there. And, and this hurt was just uh, weighing down heavy on his heart. And so at some point while he was in Ephesus, he decided to write a letter to them confronting uh, this, calling them out on, on, on their sin and challenging them to faithfulness. And it was a very strongly worded letter. Bible scholars usually refer to it as the severe letter. And it's not one that uh, we have in Scripture. And he sent that, and, and either he sent it with Titus, or he sent the letter and then sent Titus a little later on. Either way, the purpose was for Titus to go there, assess what had happened, how had they received the letter, what was going on, and then bring a report back to the Apostle Paul. So that, of course, left Paul in that wait-and-see mode. You know what I mean? He sent the letter... And now it's wait and see what happened. And you know what? If there's something that's really bothering you, some deep concern that you have, the wait and see time is the worst, isn't it? Anybody ever been there? Anybody had to deal with that? It's especially hard when you're waiting to get a response from someone, someone you care about, and you're just not sure how they're going to react or respond. That, that's the situation that Paul was in. So uh, for you out there with you know, really good memories, uh, you might recall that back in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul had started talking about this issue and, and, and how he was now waiting uh, for Titus. Back in chapter 2, he said this, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So he must have set up uh, you know, Troas as this meeting place for Titus to come and, and give him his report, and he wasn't there. 
Titus, Titus wasn't there and, and he was in this wait and see mode and it was driving him crazy because he wasn't getting any word from, from Titus. He didn't know what was happening. And so it, it was bothering him so much that he left this place where it says that a door had been opened to him for ministry, but he left that and went in search of Titus. He just couldn't stand it any longer. The waiting uh, was, was too much for him. And so he heads into Macedonia. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 7. Look at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. So he ties in what he had started in chapter 2, and then he started all these parenthetical thoughts that we've looked at from chapter 2 all the way up to chapter 7. Now he picks it back up with his search for Titus. And the two points that tie it in together, of course, are coming into Macedonia and this no rest. Or as it said in chapter 2, no rest for his spirit. So that meant for Paul, there was no peace or calmness within. Instead, he was filled with turmoil in distress. This, this emotional and spiritual turmoil, he says, had two different sources, uh, according to verse 5 there, both of which f- fell under the general heading of afflictions. And, and that word affliction literally means to be, to be pressed, uh, severely pressed. It kind of uh, the same idea as what we would say if something is really weighing us down. We just got that, he- that heavy uh, burden on us. So Paul says he was afflicted in two ways. First, from conflicts without, it says. And the word conflicts refers to fights and disputes and strife. And it's probable. We, he doesn't enumerate what the conflicts are, but it's, it's probable that there were people there in Macedonia who were, who, who were publicly and adamantly advocating for the Apostle Paul to get out of town. They didn't want him there. I mean, the last time he was in Macedonia, uh, he sparked a riot, a riot that got started in Philippi and caused all kinds of problem and, and, and uh, he was then beaten and whipped and thrown into jail. And, uh, and then, to make matters worse, at least... On the, from, from the point of view of the residents of that area, Paul humiliated the, the magistrates of the city by making them come and publicly apologize to him for wrongfully beating and imprisoning him uh, before he was sent out of town. So chances are pretty good there was a bunch of people that just didn't want him there and didn't want him around. And, and that was most likely the source of these external conflicts. But then the second form of affliction that he mentioned was the fears within. His, his mind was full of anxious thoughts and fears. And most of those fears, uh, I have no doubt, related to his concern uh, about what was happening in Corinth. Did they accept his letter or reject it? Maybe his letter had created even more problems, a bigger breach in an already damaged relationship. And, And what about Titus? I mean, if they were mad at Paul for this letter, oftentimes people take out their anger on the messenger, right? How were they treating Titus? What was going on with him? Or, or just the simple fact that back in those days, travel was precarious. It was a dangerous thing. Maybe something happened to Titus, and Titus was a beloved, close friend. Uh, 
he didn't know what was going on at all. And all of this was weighing him down. He had these fears within. You know, if you, if you had this picture of the Apostle Paul as being this perfect super Christian who always had everything all together, I mean, you got a really wrong picture of him. He, he had his ups and downs in life just like all of us. I mean, think about it. The same guy, the same guy who wrote, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, is admitting to us right here that he was full of anxiousness and, and fear. And, and, and you know, so the Apostle Paul, he needed someone at that moment to walk up uh, to him, someone uh, close to him, a good friend, perhaps one of his traveling companions, and smack him on the side of the head and say, hey man, get it together. Uh, uh, you're no better than uh, carrying around all this fear and anxiety in your heart. You know, turn, turn it over to God in prayer. You know, let him take care of it. He's there for you. You ever needed that? You ever needed somebody to come and smack you alongside the head and tell you what you already know? Right? It's not that the Apostle Paul didn't know this stuff, right? He wrote most of it. I, I don't know about you, but it, it makes me feel kind of good to know that the great Apostle Paul struggled sometimes in applying the biblical truth to tough real-life circumstances. I mean, have you ever been in that position where you know what the Bible says, but for one reason or another, you just can't seem to get that emotional turmoil out of your heart. You just can't seem to get it under control. That's where the Apostle Paul was. So what do you suppose God did about that? Did he heap piles of guilt upon the Apostle Paul, shake his finger at him and say, oh man, you, you know better than that. You shouldn't be acting like that. I'm so disappointed in you. Did he chastise him and bring discipline into his life? How did God respond to Paul's restless, anxious, fearful spirit? Well, verse 6 tells us, but God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Well, that's, that's just like God, isn't it? He chooses to meet us at our point of need. He understands our human frailties and our spiritual weaknesses. If you, you know, ever picture God as, as being like, well, maybe like some old-time uh, schoolmaster, who's standing over there just waiting for some kid to get out of line so he can paddle him? Well, you got the wrong picture of God. This verse tells us that God is a God who brings comfort. I mean, yes, there, there may come a time in your life when God does need to bring discipline. He, he does that as well. But generally, that's going to be uh, for times of willful, defiant, unrepentant sin in, in your life. But when we simply struggle with, with our weaknesses, even as we're seeking and, and trying to follow God, He's going to be there to love, encourage, and comfort you. And that's good news, isn't it? Because 
I think we've probably all been there. Many times that comfort is going to come through the hand of another godly person that the Father of mercies brings into our life at just the right time. And in this case, God brought Titus, the, the very person that Paul was looking for, brought Titus with a word from the Corinthian church. And the very fact of Titus' presence is the first thing that Paul says brought him comfort. Man, it was just good to have him there, just to be there. Titus was more than a, a fellow worker. He, he was a friend and a companion. And, and to know that Titus was okay and everything was all right just brought him comfort. But, but he had a double measure of comfort because Titus also brought back good news concerning about what was happening in Corinth. Uh, look, look again uh, in chapter 7, verse 7, it says, and not only by his coming, you know, so not only the fact that he was just there, but also by the comfort which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. See, that, that hurting, broken relationship was beginning to be restored because that church ha- at Corinth had largely uh, turned back that had I'm sorry so that church that had largely turned its back on Paul was now beginning uh, to long for mourn and have a zeal for him so how did that happen what, what brought about that change well it, it started with that severe letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians notice what Paul says about it in verse 8 he says for though I caused you sorrow by my letter I do not regret it Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Again, you notice the ups and downs there in, in, in Paul's life, in his emotions there? I wrote this letter because, man, I had to write this letter. It was the right thing to do. But, oh, man, I really regretted writing this letter. But I didn't regret writing this letter, but, but I'm glad I wrote this letter. Uh, but I was fearful and anxious about it. You know, up and down, he, he was worrying about it. But in spite of... of Paul's vacillation in his emotions, God used that letter. And and it did produce sorrow, it says, in these people. But but Paul was happy about it. And here's why he was happy about it in verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So his, his basic point there is that you know, there's a, there is a good kind of sorrow, a, a sorrow that is according to the will of God. Uh, this, this was a sorrow that was produced, remember, by being confronted about their sin. That's the context of what was going on here. And I believe whenever our sin is exposed and confronted, it almost always brings a sorrow, Right? But the important question is, what kind of sorrow? Because there's obviously two different kinds of sorrows that he's talking about here. You know, there's a, there's a sorrow of just getting caught. You know, as long as nobody knew about it, you were okay, but now you've been caught and it's out in public and so you're sorry, you're fe- feeling sorrow. There's a sorrow that comes from embarrassment and shame over that. There's a, uh, the kind of sorrow that, that, that comes from that humiliation. I think another kind of sorrow is the sorrow 
of, of punishment, right? You're not really sorry about the sin, but you're pretty sorry about what's going to happen now. You're pretty sorry about the consequences, about what you're going to have to pay, about what you're going to have to go through because of it. I think there's a sorrow that comes maybe from a sense of failure and defeat. You know, maybe you've promised yourself, I'll never do that again, and then here you are, and you've done it again, and you just feel utterly worthless and and, and defeated and like a failure and, and your sorrow. But none of those things are sorrow according to the will of God. And how do I know that? Well, because God defines the sorrow He seeks in verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow God desires is that which leads to true repentance. And that means a sorrow over the sin itself. That that you recognize and hate the sinfulness of the action itself. That's, that's, That's very different. That's much more than hating getting caught or the consequences or embarrassment or failure or any of that. It's a mourning over that sin. That leads to repentance, and that repentance literally means to turn from. And so it's, it's a scorning of that sin, turning from it and turning to God. That's, that's the sorrow God wants. And when we do that, it says it leads to salvation. Now, uh, just a quick reminder here. You remember uh, several weeks ago we talked about the fact that there are three different ways that the, word uses, uh, the Bible uses the word uh, salvation. Uh, one is for justification, that, that moment you repent of your sins and, and get God's forgiveness and get saved, you're justified. But the second uh, way it's used is in the process of sanctification. Every time you grow and become more like Christ, that's an aspect of salvation. And the third uh, is glorification, that final point in the future when we will have new bodies free from sin, free from uh, completely perfect and all that. Uh, and so you've got those three aspects of salvation. Well, since Paul was writing to people who were already saved, and he's not talking about that future time of glorification when they'll be made perfect, we can understand that he's using the term salvation here in that sense of, of, of sanctification, of growing to be more like Christ. And I love that. And we've got to get used to it because we don't use it that way. But every time you grow, to, you, you're getting saved, Right? I got saved today because, because I, I'm becoming more like Jesus Christ. And when we truly repent and when we turn from sin, we're growing in Christ-likeness. And that's the salvation it's talking about. And the Corinthian church as a whole repented of their sin and following the false teachers and, and from turning on Paul. And as a result, the good relationship they formerly enjoyed was being rebuilt. And that's why... Paul could say, as he does in verse 7, so that I rejoiced even more. Or verse 13, for this reason I have been comforted. That's what brought it about. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. When when there's a brokenness in relationship, there's a hurt, there's a strain, there's a tension. And depending on how severe it is, it can lead to a void, right? Uh, an actual dissolution uh, of that whole relationship, at least on one side. So when it's repaired, 
It always leads to joy and comfort. The Corinthians responded in repentance and that joy spilled over into their relationship with Titus and it just was a positive thing all the way around. And almost every broken relationship is due to sin. And occasionally it might be the fault of and all one-sided. It might be one, one-sided, as was this case in the Corinthians church, right? Look at what Paul said, remember in verse 2 and 3, make room for us in your hearts because we wronged no one, we, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I don't speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. On Paul's side, there was no issue. It was the problem. The wrong was all on their side. And that same thing can happen in our relationships today. But in most cases, I would guess there's wrong on both sides. And repentance is the key that opens the door of healing and restoration. And the good news from this passage is that God can and does heal those broken relationships. But in order for that to happen... The offending person, as in the case of the Corinthians here, must take ownership of their wrong and repent. And like I said, there's, there's usually wrong on both sides, but, but what happens if one person won't repent? I mean, what if the, the Corinthians had rejected the Apostle Paul's letter? You remember back in verse 10, Paul mentioned a worldly sorrow, one that's not from God. It's not a part of his world, uh, will. It doesn't lead to repentance. It may simply be that sorrow we talked about of, of failure or brokenness or shame or getting caught or, or whatever. And notice that it says about that, that it's a sorrow of the world produces death. Even, even if you were to repent of your wrong, if the other person in the broken relationship will not, even though they may have some form of a sorrow, it's a sorrow that leads to death. And you know what? I, I wish I could tell you that if you do what you're supposed to do, things would always work out right. Unfortunately, that's simply not true because we live in a messy world. Now, I know oftentimes when one person will repent of their sin, uh, they're part of the broken relationship, you know, and oftentimes I'll have people talk to me, well, yeah, I've done my wrong, but I'm only 5% and they're like 95% wrong, you know. Uh, That's just usually how it works out on things like this. Even if that's true, if you repent of your 5% and really take ownership for that, oftentimes it will lead to that other person. taking taking a look at their own life and and repenting uh, for theirs. But you know what? There's no guarantee that will happen. And in this broken, sinful place, even a person following Jesus Christ, doing what they're supposed to be doing, can experience the deep pain and heartache of a broken relationship. Because the truth is, restoration of any broken relationship takes more than just you. Unless you were the one that was 100% at fault. Both parties, they have to choose God's path of healing. And So there's just two quick things I want to say about that as we close. Both statements are about hope. One, with God, there is always hope for repaired, reconciled 
relationships. I had a friend in college, um, met him my sophomore, uh, no, it was my freshman year. His parents had divorced, and I can't remember when, in high school or junior high, but not too far back. And it, it, it really tore him up. And uh, one parent was willing to work on restoration and restoring the relationship. The other was not. And as time went on, the mom ended up getting remarried, and many years later, so did the dad. And I ended up talking to this same friend here just a few years back. And after over 20 years, his parents had reconciled. They had both repented. Now, they were both remarried. They had both repented and were able to come together and repair their relationship. And it brought healing. Not only healing to them, but this guy who's now in his 40s, well, now he's in his 50s, but it was in his 40s at that time, it brought healing to his heart because they chose to do what they should do. You know what? There's always hope. It happened after he thought all hope was gone. But the second thing I want to say is that even if the other person never repents, thereby brings death into the relationship for yourself, for you. As you turn to God, you can find hope and healing and life. Psalm 147.3 says of God, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And maybe you're in a situation where it's like that. It seems there's no hope. There's no repentance from the other person. No acceptance. No ownership of their sin. And therefore no path for you to move forward in healing a relationship. And you're now simply left with that brokenness. I, I want you to know that God is near the brokenhearted. And if you draw near to Him, He will come near to you bringing comfort and peace and healing in spite of what may or may not happen with that other person. So with God, there's always hope. Hope, yes, that at some point He will still bring restoration into that relationship, but the sure and certain hope that He will bring healing into your own heart because God is a God of comfort. Let's pray. Father God, we know how hard relationships can be and we know how easily they can be damaged. So God, I pray right now for any who are experiencing any brokenness in any relationships that you would help them to take the steps to begin the healing process of examining their own part, repenting of anything on their side. And God, we pray that that would bring about an openness of the other person's heart to also look and examine and repent. Because God, we know you desire those healed relationships. But God, even when one person would persist in sin, I pray for those who are hurting and broken in heart right now, that you would be the one who draws near to them, 
that you would heal their broken heart. Bind up the wounds. Comfort them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.